Was that awesome or what? Oh, that was anemic. Man, the Colorado fans cheered louder than that for a losing effort yesterday. Was that awesome or what? All right. Sorry for those of you who are from Colorado. It was a long day at the Coliseum, but I did get to be there with my son. If you don't know what that's about, that's okay. You know, UCLA fans, we're still praying for you as well. And um, it's all good. It's football season. It's the fall. It's agape singer time. It was awesome this morning. You know, I think about my experience when I was in high school. We actually were in, my wife and I, in a youth choir very similar to this. And um, this is like total nostalgia for me, seeing you guys there leading worship, because we got to have that experience. And so few churches today believe in the idea of leading our students into the idea that they can participate and lead us in worship and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you guys. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity that we have today to have worship together with our agape singers. Because there is so much text, and because it is widely known that I got halfway through a sermon last week, and somehow magically took the last half of last week, merged it with this week, I'm going to read the scripture, but I'm going to read it in the context of actually going through the text together. Our title this morning is Jesus Really the Answer, but if you remember the context from last week, Paul gave us a wish list of things that he wanted for us, and now he's going to give us some warnings that go along with that wish list. Now, I was thinking about all the popular warnings that we've been told about in today's uh, world that we live in. Um, now, some of them are funny because they started with our parents. Our parents would say something like this. This is a warning right before discipline might have occurred in our home. This is the warning. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Not sure if I bought that warning, but that's one of them. Some of the warnings that are on labels in the store crack me up. Drano, for instance. Please do not swallow. Uh, wondering if that, if that any other than a, a three-year-old would know not to swallow the Drano. Uh, some of you have warnings in your car. It's a little blinking light when the oil light goes on, and some of you have learned that if you don't take care of that, it causes other problems, like kaboom, there goes your engine. There are other warnings I found out on the 118 freeway. It says there is a sign, 65 miles an hour. It's a passive warning until you go over Rocky Peak, and the the gentleman with the radar gun helps you recognize that maybe you were going too fast. That's another kind of warning. Um, there are all kinds of warnings. One of the, the ones that uh, were a little nerve-wracking for us when we grew up in Minnesota, or didn't grow up, when we spent 14 years in Minnesota, was the sirens that would go off for a tornado warning. So in life, we have warnings, and Paul, in Colossians chapter uh, 2, starting in verse 4, gives us the first of several warnings, and I'll, we'll phrase them a little differently, but let's look at his first warning in chapter 2, verse 4. He says this, I say this in order that you may not delude yourselves with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. His warning is this, resist or guard against theological deception. 
be careful about theological deception. He says, don't delude or, as the New American Standard says, deceive yourselves. In other words, don't, there's this reason to be careful. Don't substitute the counterfeit for the real. Some of you like, how, ladies, how many of you like silk flowers? Three of you. Okay. So, bad illustration, but the bottom line, the silk flowers look nice, but I don't think they're real. And so we like the real stuff, but they have problems and they get all kinds of other issues. So it is, don't delude yourself and think that the fake is the real. The idea is you've received from the Lord, so don't be deceived. And it would be very easy, and it happens in our culture today, that we get carried away by false philosophies that aren't found in the Bible. But for whatever reason, we seem to be deluded at times, and, we, and they seem plausible at the time. You've seen that in the debates politically. These arguments seem plausible. When one person talks, the other person talks, oh, I can buy that, oh, I don't understand that. I, you know, and you go back and forth. Everything seems plausible when you play loose with the truth. So what are the popular ideas today that may be deluding us as a congregation? Let me suggest just a few. First of all, one that I find all the time when I'm dealing with my atheist and racquetball playing, uh, I have two guys, one's an atheist, one's an agnostic. Uh, we were talking about this just this last Thursday again, is this one. Here's a, here's a plausible argument, but it's totally false. Science and faith are incompatible. That's one of those plausible arguments that he's warning you about. They sound good, but they're just not true. In fact, if you want to go a step farther, some of our students and our college students, some of you face this. You go to an academic setting, and they say, yeah, well, to be a Christian, you kind of have to check your brain in at the door. No, you don't have to check your brain in at the door. So that's one of those plausible arguments. How about this? That cohabitation is okay. Friends with benefits is okay. I was just speaking at Oaks Christian High School this past week, and I talked about the four kinds of love. And it was a very interesting discussion. I, those students were hanging on every word, especially when I, I drew up this chart of marriage, engagement, and, and uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, and then the, this column over here was friends with benefits and acquaintances. And we talked very frankly about how casually students approach sexual relationships. That's one of those plausible arguments, that there's no consequences. And in fact, if you go a step further, we would say that, oh, traditional marriage, it's kind of outdated and unnecessary. That's a plausible argument. Not true. How about this one? There's no absolutes? Come on. Really? There's no absolutes. In fact, if we buy into that, then we say that the tolerance of all ideas are equally acceptable. Some ideas are just bad ideas. Just bad ideas. Number four, here's a plausible argument, a, a popular idea that may delude us. I'm the master of my own life. I really don't have to be accountable to anyone or anything. False. We are not the masters of our own life. And in fact, every one of us someday will face an opportunity to meet our maker and will account for our lives. And then here's one more, one that might be a little more personalized to our church. Hey, if I don't like the pastor or what he has to say, I'm just going to leave the church. Instead of maybe asking, what does the Bible say about that topic? The beautiful thing about a community church, about a Bible church, 
is that you are rooted in God's word. And we're going to look at what that actually means here in just a few minutes. And in fact, we understand that there's been all kinds of transitions over, say, the last 10 years. Different pastors here come, have come and gone. But the bedrock of what this church is about is that God's word doesn't come back void. That if we keep our nose in the word, not just in an intellectual way, but in an application kind of way, then we know that, hey, we, we may have some ups and downs. We may have some struggles. There may be some real conflict. But in the end, are we staying true to God's word? And of course, that's the, that's the $64,000 question. Is this true to God's word, or is this somehow some invention of somebody else making something up that we're not so sure about? And what I want to caution us as a church is, when it's clearly stated in God's word, there is no discussion. But as we talked about last week, a lot of our conflict among other believers isn't over God's word, it's over our opinions about God's word. It's an issue of wisdom, not God's will. There's plenty of debate on wisdom issues that there are legitimate options on either side of the coin. Now, look at this word in here, he says, I am, though I'm absent in body, I am with you in spirit, in spirit. Why was he there in spirit? Because he was a prisoner. Remember, again, he has never visited the Colossian church. All this is a long-distance communication kind of relationship via this letter and through other people. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't care for them, that he isn't passionate for them. Uh, I was, again, reminded, I see Nate and Abby out in the audience, that when they go to Indonesia, they'll be absent from us, but that doesn't mean they don't care about us and that we don't care about them, and through the modern technology of Skype, we will probably be able to stay connected. And in fact, as we roll out some things in the future from our missions team, hopefully once a month we're going to be hearing from different people from all around the world about what God is doing, even though they're absent from us. Now, here's another interesting thing. He says, rejoicing to see your, look at verse 5, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. That's how it's translated in the ESV version. Your good order and the firmness of your faith. It, those are military terms, and it's the idea of soldiers lining up uh, together and paying uh, strict attention, and that they were standing firm against the false teachers of the early church. And that, that early time period in the church we, I have told you before, and we'll look at this finally next, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, at Gnosticism. By the way, just so you know where we're headed, next week we're not going to be in Colossians. Next week there'll be a family message called, I want to be just like you. And we're going to talk about how to be a spiritual role model to your kids. So it'll be a very family-friendly uh, service, and we'll pick up Colossians in a couple of weeks. Now look at this quote from Tyron Edwards, or Tyrone Edwards. He's the great-grandson of uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher. He said this, Doctrine is the necessary foundation of duty. If the theory is not correct, the practice cannot be right. Tell me what a man believes, and I'll tell you what he will do. That is so true. Friends, what you believe is like the iceberg principle in life. What you believe is what's underneath the surface of your life. What's above the waterline in an iceberg is what you can see. That's your behavior. And so often in counseling, people come to me and there's a little phrase I do in marriage counseling. The problem is not the problem. In fact, the presenting problem is rarely the problem when someone comes to me in counseling. And so part of my job is to drill down beneath the waterline. The behavior is what I'm seeing. But what's going on beneath the surface? 
It's true in dealing with kids. We look at behavior up here, and there's all kinds of presenting behaviors, but what's more important is what's driving that? Why is that kid doing what he's doing? Let me ask these guys for a second. Do you know somebody at your school who's sullen, withdrawn, kind of standoffish, and hard to get to know? Do you know any kids like that? Yes, some are like, like my brother. No, you know, we're not talking about anybody in the family. But they all know kids. You know kids. And you go, what's gone on with that kid? What happened to that kid? And so often we look at them and go, oh, they're a problem. They're a problem. We got to deal with them. And yet I bet if we took the time to just get beneath the surface of some of those, their friends, that are kind of like, don't be pointing at Noah. Don't do that. <laughs> but if we got beneath the surface, there would be a story. You know, when I speak to kids at public schools about depression and suicide, kids always come up to talk. And some of the saddest stories I've ever heard are the, the stories of kids who are super depressed and think life isn't worth living. I was speaking at a um, school down in Orange County, Valencia High School, and a 15-year-old Hispanic girl comes up to me and she goes, I'm just like that person you were talking about today. I said, yeah, tell, tell me your story. What, what happened? She said, well, first of all, my, my mom and dad are, are divorced. My dad was here illegally, and he's been deported back to Guatemala. And I'll never get to see my dad again. I said, that's a bummer. I said, well, how, how's things with mom? She goes, and I, I, with no exaggeration, she said, I hate my mom. I said, what's going on there? She goes, oh, my mom. And she went off. And I said, well, do you have anybody you can talk to? She said, well, I used to talk to my aunt. I said, what happened to your aunt? She said, my aunt died of cancer about a month ago. I said, do you have any other family members? And she kind of rolled her eyes, yeah, brother. I go, what's, what's that story? You see, every question I asked her, there was another problem, another story. And she described how her brother kind of just beat up on her for fun, just because he could. And then when... She hung her head like that. I said, there's something else you're not telling me, is there? And a little tear began to come down her cheek. I said, what happened to you? And then she began to cry as she described that her next door neighbor had taken advantage of her sexually the previous week and raped her. See, there's a story behind every painful face. And in life, as you do life, whether you're an adult or a student, let's not judge people because of the behavior. There's something that's happened to them. There's something in the belief system. And so what she believed, that she was worthless, that she was trash, that she deserved these things from her neighbor, from her, from her, from her brother, and all that went with it. And so I took that little girl by the hand and I marched her straight down to the counselor's office. I said, you have got to promise me that you will help her. And because when we go into the schools, they're alerted to that, the counselors were ready to receive her. And I say all that just because there are times where what you say and what your behavior, there is something beneath the surface that causes many people pain. And in this case, theologically, 
oftentimes in our culture, the behavior is just a reflection of the worldview that it's espousing. And in fact, in two weeks, we're going to look at three very popular worldviews that were popular back then, and in fact, they're popular today. Well, he gives that warning, then he gives it in a different way. He gives an exhortation. His exhortation is, walk like Jesus. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I'm a, I'm a, I always have a pen in my pocket, and I'm always marking something up. So if you're a Bible marker, get your pen out. I want you to circle four words, all right? I want you to circle rooted. I want you to circle built up. I want you to circle established and circle abounding or overflowing, whichever word you have in your translation. Let's look at those. He says, walk like Jesus. Now, he doesn't just say walk like Jesus. He says, walk like Christ Jesus the Lord. This is the trifecta of theology. In, um, in uh, hockey terms, you get a hat trick. Here's the hat trick of theology. Each one of those words very clearly chosen. Christ represents his deity. That's the Judaism denied that part. Um, Jesus is the word representing his humanity. That's what the docetists uh, kind of rejected early on in early Christianity. And then Lord represents his sovereignty. So his deity, his humanity, and his sovereignty. And of course, we know all kinds of false teachers deny the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Now, the problem here is that people camp on this verse and say, Christ Jesus, the Lord, and they produce a view of salvation called lordship salvation. It's very controversial in the churches today. We have uh, the idea of, of, of what we call basic uh, Jesus, no strings attached faith, and we have lordship salvation, and people believe that salvation is everything in between that. And the people on this side accuse the people on this side of just easy believism. The people on this side accuse the people on that side of saying you're adding to the gospel. Well, Jesus, or Paul says in here, that there is a lordship part of your salvation. And my contention is when you accept Jesus as your savior, you have to have at least the knowledge that he's coming to sit on the throne of your life. The difference is it may take one of you a long time before you're sanctified and come, become formed to the image of Christ. For others of you, the change is I mean, it's unmistakable. It's, I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. But what happens in churches, if our sanctification process doesn't go as fast for you as some people think it should be, then they start questioning whether you really trusted Christ as your Savior. And maybe you've seen that in your own experiences with other people. Here's where it really, the rubber really meets the road. What happens if you have a child who accepted Christ as a young child, but seem, seemingly there's no fruit in their life now as a 15-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old? And so there is the discussion as, as a church that we have to understand what is the essence of the gospel? Well, he's saying here that he's received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And I will believe that you, as you accept Christ, he will become more and more prominent in your life as you become more and more like him because you walk like him. And that idea of walking, by the way, is an imperative term, and it's in this, this tense which says it's continual. 
So just like walking in your physical life is good for you, that's even better in your spiritual life. Now he describes what walking like Jesus is in four very vivid terms. If you were a filmmaker, you would love this. You'd say, oh my goodness, the imagery here is powerful. And in fact, if Chad had more time, he probably could have done a video this week for us of these four things. Because there are people who think in terms of images and pictures. And I, I think we have four different pictures for, for you here. First of all, the first one is rooted, four metaphors. That's an agricultural metaphor, isn't it? That would be common to his listeners. So we're rooted. Christians, by the way, are not tumbleweeds. There's no tumbleweed Christians in the world. You're rooted. You stay put. You stay with your church. You stay with Jesus Christ. You don't get transplanted. Now, you get transplanted if you have to take a job and move to Atlanta. But the bottom line is stay put. Don't move from soil to soil. There's no need. Stay put. Think about oak trees. Anybody seen a really old oak tree? Oak trees are amazing because their roots just go way down. And they, and they grow for hundreds of years. It's why we see oak trees that can stand alone, but sequoia trees that can't stand alone. You see, we need both in our life. Oak trees represent the idea that our roots go deep into the bedrock of God's word. It takes a lot to uproot an oak tree because they go so deep. But if you notice a sequoia tree, they are never alone, and they're always in groves because those sequoia trees, their roots go this way, not this way. And so it's my understanding that in a, dealing with the, the sequoia trees, if they somehow get isolated from the grove, they're very easily toppled, even though they're big, tall, huge trees. Because those roots interconnect. And I think in the body of Christ, we are like sequoia trees for one another. We interconnect our roots together. Many of you are in a small group. That's why we do that, so you can interconnect. You're like an oak tree. Your Bible says deep into the bedrock of God's word, but you're like oak, uh, sequoia trees where your roots are interconnected. He says, be rooted together. Then he said, be built up in Christ. That's an architecture term. An architecture term. It goes from agriculture to architecture. And it means this idea of being built up. When we trust Christ, he puts us on a foundation. Now, some of you who would trust in Christ later in life get this in a way that some of us who trusted Christ as a young kid don't get. Because when you trust Christ later in life, you realize, man, I had no foundation. I was just tossed around. I didn't really have any sense of identity and purpose and meaning. And sometimes we look back and go, how did I make it through that time without being built up in Christ. Not only were we not rooted, we weren't built up in Christ. By the way, 1 John 2.6 is another great word uh, about this idea of being walking like Jesus. Check it out sometime. Thirdly, he says you're established in faith. You're established in faith. That's an education term. And it's very interesting, of these four terms, this is the only one that's in the passive. In other words, we, God does the establishing. We can't establish ourselves. He does the establishing. And it speaks of stability. And if it's an educational term, what's the curriculum to be established in? What is it? What do you think it is? It's God's word. Yeah, it's God's word is the curriculum that we're established in. 
Now let's just pause and go to meddling just for a second, all right? Just for a moment. If we say this word is important, why is it that we spend so little time reading it, studying it, and applying it? Now some of you will push back and you'll go, Pastor John, I am in precepts. I'm in lambs. I have studied the names of God. Francis Chan are, and I, we're best friends. The Holy Spirit is something I know something about. I mean, and we can do studies, and we feel good about our studies, and there's nothing wrong about that, but there are two things I think plague the American church today. We say we value God's word, but we spend very little time in studying it for ourselves, and number two, we are selective in our listening and reading of it because we only want to apply the stuff that's not painful, that, that are good for us. But there are stuff in there that we go, that seems harsh. That seems hard. Ouch, I'm not sure I want to do that. Uh-huh. Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so there are times where God's word is painfully obvious that there are changes that need to occur in our life. And it's a lot harder to live God's word than to learn God's word. Just remember, it's a lot easier to learn God's word than it is to live God's word. The foundation is you gotta get into it from the beginning. So he says, establish in faith, then lastly, abounding or overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving. That's a river term, maybe another agriculture or river term. And so the formula is root plus built up plus established. Those th first three things equals what? Then you're going to come out of your mouth gratitude and thanksgiving. And it's abounding. That word is used 26 times in the New Testament. All that to say, this is not a, 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 an uncommon thing. Paul says you ought to be abounding in these things. If you're a studier of God's word, then go to Ezekiel 47. Look at the river flowing from the sanctuary. That would be a cross-reference that you could take a look at later. It's also maybe a reference to the righteous man in Psalm 1, planted by trees of water, okay? And so the problem is, for many of us, as Warren Wiersbe says, we're making no progress. Our lives are shallow trickles instead of a mighty river. And we looked long and hard for a mighty river this week. You know, and there's something powerful about a mighty river. So if you look at those four different word pictures, that's what describes what being like Jesus is like. Now, third warning comes in form of a question in verse 8. His question is simply this, are you being held hostage? Are you being held hostage? Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Or other words, deception. Are you being held hostage? And I want to suggest that there's a lure here. There's a lure. Philosophy always appeals to your ego. The luring part that you're being held hostage to is that philosophy always appears to, uh, appeals to your ego. True or false, students, when you meet someone who's super smart, does that ever feel a little intimidating to you? Yeah, because they talk all this, and all of a sudden you go like, what were they talking about? And so what do we do? We just nod our heads going, hmm, yep, yeah, sure, thumbs up. 
But it doesn't stop when you're in high school. I'm telling you, do you meet people in the workplace and they overwhelm you with verbiage and then you walk away from that conversation and you go, I have no idea what they just said. <laughs> but you're not going to give them the benefit of the doubt that you don't know what they just said. So you nod your head and go, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. You have no idea what they meant. I think sometimes we confuse people with all our verbiage and, and because this philosophy appeals to our egos. So in relationship to false philosophy, he says three things. Number one, don't allow yourself to be deceived. In other words, don't be allow yourself to be taken hostage or being taken captive. In uh, Matthew 7, 15, it's the same word for kidnap. Don't let someone kidnap you philosophically. And this philosophy he's talking about is only used one time in the whole New Testament. That word is only used one time, that particular word. This idea of speculating and that there was some kind of divine revelation that somehow you missed it and only us have it and so we're going to impart it to you. Think about that for a second. Do we ever run into that where people say, hey, there's a special revelation and, only, and we're going to tell you about it. Who tells you that? It didn't come from God's word. Who says there's that special revelation and we're going to tell you about it? Who are they? The Mormons. They come riding on their bikes with the skinny little ties, right? And so they're telling you <laughs> They're saying that only we've got this special revelation from Joseph Smith and the plates of Moroni and, or the angel Moroni and the golden plates. Man, I'd cash in the gold right now. It's worth what? How much an ounce? Anyway, that's another discussion. And so it's a, it's a philosophy that says, hey, we're we believe that there's this special revelation. Paul's saying there wasn't. You see, I think Paul's possibly referring, there are three different Jewish religious sects that's sects, S-E-C-T-S, thank you, that he might have been referring to, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the Essenes, that all had kind of weirdness going on with them in the first century. He said, don't be taken captive by empty deceit, all right? Empty deceit, this deception, this fraud, this trick, it always sounds good, but it's lethal, Think about the philosophies in life. I mentioned five of them to you earlier that sound good, but it's lethal. And so often we get caught in this because the worldly philosophy just draws us away like the poppy fields of the Wizard of Oz that delude us into believing something because our senses are dulled. Someone said it this way, we can't be aware, be, we can't beware of deceptive philosophy unless we are aware. You can't beware unless you are aware. And again, I know I sound like a broken record, but you've got to go to the Truth Project. If you're lacking in this area, we're giving you some of the best stuff every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, which is God's hour for those of you who are early morning people, or even earlier and spend time talking about that, so be aware. One of the biggest issues that we are unaware of is that we believe that there is no consequence for sin. The scripture clearly says what you sow, you're gonna what? Gonna reap. There are consequences for our choices and our behavior. So first of all, don't allow yourself to be deceived. Secondly, don't admire those who are spiritually bankrupt. According to human traditions, paradosis, all right, human traditions, don't admire them. They're spiritually bankrupt. 
There's all kinds of bankrupt philosophies going around today. We won't talk about those. And then thirdly, he says, don't accept man-made tradition. Don't accept man-made tradition. You can see that um, according to uh, the elementary spirits or principles of the world, man-made. I put a picture up here to illustrate this point. To abandon biblical truth for empty philosophy is like returning to kindergarten after you earn your PhD. That's what we do sometimes. You can get your PhD in following Jesus right here. Why do we get drawn away from this to this attractive bad choice? Had an interesting experience. I'm with my 25-year-old son at the Coliseum yesterday. We're sitting in great seats watching USC pummel Colorado. But there were two rows behind us that were completely empty and one row in front of us completely empty. It was awesome. Your feet out in front of you, you could stretch out. We didn't have to sit next to each other. Two guys are like electrons. You just don't want to sit next to each other. We got to find some space, right? And so, first of all, two girls from Colorado come up and sit right behind us. So therefore, their little feet are now poking my son in the back. So he was going to say something, but he turned around and he went back to me. He went and goes, Wow. <laughs> now, I think you know what wow means, all right? For the uninitiated, maybe in the back of the crowd, they were smoking hot, all right? So that's the bottom line, all right? You go, okay, and so he turned around, he goes, too bad you're on the losing side. And this blonde-haired girl goes, whatever, you know. <laughs> then someone else was her, we're not here for the game. And I went, ooh. It's heating up here. Let's see what happens. They both get on their phones. They're texting. The next thing you know, there are like eight girls from Colorado sitting behind us. My son is in his element. <laughs> he is now graceful and gracious talking. And there's two guys and like eight girls, right? And they're talking. And I hear one go, this is so boring. These fans are all about Soberfest. They all they want to do is go drink. It's a, it's a bankrupt philosophy. My son could overhear the conversation. He turned back a couple of times, engaging them in some comedy of some sort. And eventually they got bored with the game, and I left. I looked at him, and it was so cool because he didn't buy the lie that a good-looking girl who wants to get drunk is something to be sought after. He said to me as we talked, he said, that's what party girls do. I said, is there something more than that? Daddy says, it's so sad the number of girls that have no idea who they've spent the night with because they're so wasted. And you could see in his eyes that though the, initially there was a bit of temptation that he had already processed and said, don't need that. I don't need that life. I don't need that trouble. For any of you who are a parent of a, a boy man, someone who's grown up and become a man, when you see him react to that kind of temptation and not buy the lie, inside your soul goes, yes, yes. Now where God is that beautiful Christian girl who has standards <laughs> that he could meet, right? You have yes, but where God are you providing the woman like Rebecca and Rachel? and others. 
So the bottom line is oftentimes we buy into these lies. Don't accept man-made traditions. Did I use the name of somebody in the group here? I'm so sorry. All right. <laughs> Rachel? Is there a Rachel in the group? Is there a Rebecca in the group? You're not old enough. All right. So the lie is this. This is not God's plan. The lie is this. This is not God's plan. Satan will always, always counterfeit God's plan. And he'll use any method possible to confuse the issue or to compound the problem. Always. So when we compare God's word to a popular opinion that the so-called experts show us the facts, let's just take a moment, take a deep breath, dig a little deeper and say, does this square with God's word? Is what you say rooted in Scripture? Is what they're saying rooted in the Scriptures? Well, finally, he goes from warnings, and actually, that, what I just finished now, just completed where I was supposed to end last week. So now we're on an adventure again. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly where we're landing this, but we'll see how far we get. So his solution is, Jesus is ultimately all you need. Verses 9 through 15 then answers these warnings and says, Jesus is what you ultimately need. And first of all, in verses 9 and 10, we see the presence of Jesus. He fills us. He fills us. For in him, the whole of fullness of deity dwells boldly or bodily in, I can say this, in bodily form. First of all, his deity, Jesus is fully God. He fills us, he's ultimately all we need, and Jesus is fully God. He says that in verse nine. Not just a God. Pause here for a second. Anybody ever visited by a Jehovah's Witness? If they take you, if you take them into the house, they're gonna take you eventually at some point to what verse? John 1.1, 1, 1, and they'll mistranslate it in the New World Translation, and they'll say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That is not what the Greek says. That is not what the Scripture says. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a little g God, not a number of many gods, which both cults, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, both teach. We're not spirit children trying to become God and with three different kinds of heavens as the Mormons teach. And so the bottom line is Jesus is fully God. That, by the way, that philosophy was a pre-Gnostic philosophy it began all the way back then in 2,000 years ago. Jesus didn't give up his deity when he became a man. Now, I know this is gonna get just a bit theological, but hang with me. You see, the, the, the docetic theory was that Jesus had no human body. He did have a body. He lived on earth. It says in bodily form. Now the problem was the Greeks, and this is something that these guys will study, and anybody who goes and takes a class in college in world religions, when they talk about various Greek philosophical thinking, was they thought that matter was evil and spirit was good. And so it was unthinkable in their mind that God could ever take on a human body. But Paul's refuting that teaching here, right here in Colossians, and he's stressing the reality of Jesus' incarnation. Incarnation is God becoming man. Jesus was not only fully God, but he was fully human. 
I think I've said this before, but if you study four of the major heresies in the first few centuries, all four of those heresies either overemphasize or emphasize his deity or overemphasize or underestimate his humanity, all four of them. And I won't go into that, but you can study that and you can see how easily it's, we can get off the path. For just a moment here, for those of you in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, let me say something to you. When it appears that people like me or other believers seem very dogmatic about certain things, it's not because we're trying to pound you over the head with the truth, but we know how many times you've been barded with truth that is anything but truth, and it's no wonder you're confused about what you should or shouldn't believe. We get that. And what I love about this place is that you as a congregation are willing to give people time and patience as they navigate through life trying to figure what they really believe out. And there's some, by the way, there's some really, really smart people in this congregation, much smarter than I am. And they think very theologically. And so for some of you, you need to be able to understand it intellectually. For others of you, and I tend to be more on this side, it's not so much about what I, I'm thinking, but I'm reading people. What's going on inside of you? And for some of you, you don't need a lecture intellectually. You need someone with a cup of coffee and a friendship and a couple of hours in a non-crowded Starbucks where you can actually hear each other and just talk. And be a place where you can ask those questions and not feel what? Stupid. Because so many people who are far from God met a Christian who was intellectual and it made them feel what? Dumb. And then they backed away because they thought their questions were not relevant. They're completely relevant. And I just beg you, if you're in this place and you have not yet followed Christ as Jesus, the Lord of your life, and you have questions now is the appointed time. It's time to ask those questions without fear and talk to someone that you trust. And so he's saying that Jesus is fully God. Now, secondly, look at his dwelling, not just his deity. Look at his dwelling in verse 10. And you have been filled in him. You've been made complete in Christ. When you get Jesus, you're complete in Christ. Nothing is lacking. You're filled to completion. It's like filling it up and you're overflowing. You get all of Jesus you're going to get when you become a Christian. And it, it says that literally that word to dwell means to settle down and be at home. Jesus wasn't a temporary fix back then or now. It's a permanent home. It's a permanent home. Remember our first year of marriage. Remember Delaware Street, Huntington Beach? Man, it was this little two-bedroom apartment. We paid a whopping $260 a month for that two-bedroom. Oh, to go back to those days. And it was half of my paycheck. I was making $500 a month. And half of it went to my housing. I'm thinking today, some things have never changed. <laughs> just bigger numbers, just bigger numbers. And he says he's going to dwell in you. He dwells in you. It's a permanent dwelling. It's not a temporary apartment deal that eventually you'll have, quote, your own place, in your own places in your heart. Jesus makes your place his place. 
Then thirdly, look at his declaration. Jesus is the CEO. He's the boss who is the head of all, over all rule and authority. He's the CEO. He's the boss. And um, when you see Jesus as number one, there's no person, no, there's no power, there's no government, there's no institution, there's no army, there's no dictator that can stand up to the awesome power of Jesus. Sometimes when I worship, I worship with my hands open like this. Sometimes I worship with one hand. Sometimes, you know, I feel kind of funny because I learned this at a football game, but I like just putting my finger up there, and he is number one. There's no close second. Just sidebar on worship, just for a second. I hope this is a place that you can respond in ways that are okay with you and not distracting to others. And some of us, we worry, are we distracting someone if we're just passionate in worship? You're not distracting anybody. It's you and God. For some of you, you do that in a quiet way. Some of you are more demonstrative. It's okay. But when he is number one, when he's the boss, I'd be careful about sneering at what the boss says is important. You ever been in that situation? You've been around somebody who's in charge? Everybody's kind of careful about what they say because the boss is there. Some of you are the boss, right? You're the one who has, calls your team together and people listen and they nod their heads and they take notes and they go off and scurry about their business. I have a really interesting opportunity tomorrow. Time for you to pray for your pastor. I'm speaking at for the executive management team of Bertolini Seating. Unfortunately, they're not the seats that our church owns. Big mistake. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. But it's a big chair pew, you know, manufacturer. And I'm speaking to their management team tomorrow about leadership down in Newport Beach tomorrow about 8 o'clock in the morning. So if you're doing something and available to pray, would you pray? Most of that team are Christians. There's a few that aren't Christians. And I'm ultimately going to use a closing illustration about your life and your lips needing to be in sync together. And I'm going to give a gospel presentation at the end of my presentation and then get out of Dodge. <laughs> See, the good news is I know the CEO is a Christian. He says, bring it. And I said, bring it? He says, bring it. I said, okay. Because Jesus is the ultimate CEO of that company, right? Jim Bertolini is a committed Christ follower. And as such, he wants Jesus Christ and his principles to pervade his management team. Well, what is the plan of Jesus? What is the plan? Verse 11, he sanctifies us. In him you were circumcised, and I won't get into all that, by putting off the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Let me just say two things about this. Number one, our identification. He marks us as one of his own. Every Jewish boy, as you know, was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Look at Leviticus chapter 12. And that outward act never saved a Jewish boy, just to identify him as a Jewish boy. Number two, he, our initiation, he transformed us. He transforms us. Jesus' death on the cross ultimately is our ability to be transformed because of what he did on the cross. So circumcision in the Old Testament was just a, a symbolic of needing cleansing. We cut off the sin of our old life and what needs to be removed. So we've seen there in verses, the presence of Jesus in verses 9 and 10, then the plan of Jesus, he sanctifies us in verse 11. 
than the power of Jesus, verses 12 through 14. And he does several things. And again, I just don't want to rush through this. I just, this, what we're doing in these next few verses are so important because it transforms the way you view Jesus and may forever change the way you view what he did. So Chad, come on up. We're gonna draw a line in our Bibles at verse 11. And I believe you, someday I will land this plane. I'm not sure when, but I will land this plane. But let's wrap up here as they come to sing. As you look at the plan, the presence of Jesus, he's filled you. And the plan of Jesus that he sanctifies you. I want to end with this. What needs to be removed from our lives? What is it that Jesus has transformed? What needs to be removed from our lives? You see, so often we go through the Christian life and we, we say all the right things and we say Jesus is Lord but there's a private little secret closet over here that only you hold the key to. And in fact, we can say all the right things in front of our Christian friends, but if the truth be known, there's stuff in our lives that Jesus just has got to come in and clean out. He's got to come in and say, you know, that area that you've been holding on to, is keeping you and me from that full fellowship. Now you say, Pastor, I didn't come here for you to make me feel guilty. Look, at, that's not my job either. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. That's His job. I'm just suggesting today, as we look at the immense power and authority of Jesus Christ, are you holding on to something today that, that he really wants to take care of and, and be the boss of and control of? And I don't even know what that is. But if I know human nature like I know me, let me just suggest to you, maybe there's something you're just super worried about and you're just hanging on. And God says, let go, I'll, I'll take it. And you go, you give it to him for a second and then, it, your prayer doesn't get answered in the timely fashion. You just grab it back. Going, See, you didn't do it. Or maybe there's a situation that you've prayed about and prayed about and prayed about and there seems no solution. And at times you say, Jesus, if you are the CEO of the world, why can't you take care of this little thing for me? And you never say it to your friends, but you look up and you go, Seriously? Why? And if you have a real pity party one week, you go, what did I do to deserve this? And then when the Holy Spirit goes, check out Job, you go, I don't want to read Job right now. I just want you to answer my deal and deal with it now, God. Ever been there? I've been there. Some of you are in chronic pain. Church never talks about that. Man, you live with arthritis, you live with a back issue, you deal with an ear issue, you have a head issue, I don't even, and that chronic pain is your thorn in the flesh, and you go, Jesus, really, is, 
is heaven the only place I'm ever going to be completely healed? Why do some churches pray for people and they actually get healed? And I've been praying and I've never been healed. And you wonder about that. See, I don't know what it is that you're holding on to, but I'm guessing that for some of you, today is the day to let go of it. You say, how do I let go of it? I think it starts with the acknowledgement that only Jesus, there can only be one Lord of your life. You say, that's pretty simplistic, I know. But it starts with an intellectual assent that you cannot be the boss, and you've got to yield. And I know some of you are just afraid you never want to come up, you don't want to pray with the elders, you just want to keep it a secret. But today, maybe it's the day that you say, I want to let go of this. I'm going to stand over here. And the problem will be is that you're going to want to let go of something, but you don't want the whole world to know that you're letting go of something. And that's, again, part of that battle. And so even being seen praying with me or my wife is a, an acknowledgement that you are flawed or that you're in need. And my friends, that's the point. We are flawed. We are in need. We need not only a Savior, but we need to learn to let go of those things that are keeping us from allowing Jesus Christ to really be the answer. Amen? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray very specifically. And if, in fact, you are one of those people who need to let go of something, you're a believer, but you need to let go of something, I'm going to ask you to do something very specifically. I'm going to ask you to just look me in the eye. You don't have to come up. But if you want to, I will. If you want to talk to me later, I will. But at least today, acknowledge that Jesus needs to be Lord and let go of whatever that is. Fair enough? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and we ask that you would take from us the thing that we're holding on to and clinging to so dearly. And we may have known you for years, but today we're saying you need to be the Lord of this area of my life as well. I've been hanging on to the key to this closet for way too long. And so, Lord, I ask today that you would take that thing from me. I give it to you. Don't let me take it back. Not just intellectually, but volitionally of a choice. I give it over to you, whatever that thing is. If you've prayed that today, just look me in the eye and say, I prayed that prayer like that today. Okay. It's just between you and me and God. Anybody else? Wait till I see your eyes. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Moving my way back. I can see that far. Okay. Okay. Yeah, if I didn't see your eyes, just kind of wave your hand at me. Okay. Got it. Anybody else? Okay. Okay. See, you're not alone. We all want to grab on to those things and hold on to them. And so, Lord, may today be a, a line of reckoning in the sand that today we release that to you. Be the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, in Christ alone, all things are possible, amen? Even the thing that we hold on to that we think is impossible, he makes possible. And so today, as you leave, leave with the knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he has the ability to handle whatever we want to hold on to. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, to the only wise God be glory and majesty, dominion and power now and forevermore. Amen. Be blessed.